Okay, so uh, today's stuff is Nindale. Um, we're just back, so we start on Nindale on the set. And uh, we were talking about the way the Kohen Gadol would walk backwards out of the Kodesh Kedushim. And then we translated that to walking backwards when one departs from his Rebbe. So sort of the transference of that sense of the center from being the Mikdash to Torah and the representative of Torah. And then to more of a direct God encounter, the stepping back when one um, finishes Shemona Esrei. Um, so now we are on in Gimel Amit Bet. Um, uh, where, which, um, where the Gemara says like this. Tanya um, Namihachi, the line, the second line from the of the middle sized lines, um, very beginning. Well, the one who prays has to step three steps behind himself, three steps backwards. And then say Shalom. The loss came, and if he did not do this, it's better not to have prayed because I guess the way you end the prayer sort of uh, you know um, affects the entire nature of the prayer, um, and therefore it's, uh, it's the whole thing is worthless, which is a pretty harsh statement. Um, so Rashi says, Roy Shalohi Palel, Roy Hayolo Imlohi Palel Amtai. No, okay, right, no, he doesn't add anything. Okay, it would have been better not to have prayed. Mishum Shmaya Amru, in the name of Shmaya, they said, Shenosin Shalom Liamin Rachach Lismo. First you say, first you say, you know, oh, say Shalom Bimarala. First you give peace to the right, and then you do it to the left. Now, if anybody knows, we, we do it the opposite, and we'll get to that in a minute. From God's right hand is the is the law of fire to um, to him to his, to the people. So God, you first focus on the right. Um, a thousand shall fall by your right, and a myriad uh, should, fall, um, should, fall, um, should fall by your side, and a myriad by your right. So a myriad is ten thousand, much more than a thousand. So again, the general preference of um, halacha to the right. So the Gemara says, but we're not done. My Omer, what's the extra Pasuk adding? Sure, God gives the Torah in the right hand, because you normally do things in your, with your right hand, since most of the world is righties. Talking here from a, um, a, a small, uh, I'm talking here as a lefty. Um, and actually, everybody in my family, um, all, my wife and my kids are all lefties. Anyway, So you see, it's not just about the act of giving something. In general, there's a favoring of the right hand. So that would seem that you first say, Oh, say Shalom Brimur Mav, you bow to your right. Okay, but we're not done. The Rava Chazye Abaye, Rava Sar Abaye, Yav Shlom Yamin, Abereisha. First he said that he did this. First he said, Oh, say Shalom Brimur Mav, to his right. Amalei, and now he corrected him. These Sabbaths, you mean Didach? No, 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 you got it wrong. We don't mean first you give peace to your right side. We small didakamina. First, you say it to your, first you bow to your left side. Why? Because you're leaving God. So giving giving shalom to the right means to the right as if God were in your presence, which means to your left, God's right, um, and that is what we do. They did the three the three backward with one prostration. Presumably, they were bowed down as they did the three steps backward. So it was not just another way of taking leave is bowing down. And we mentioned that also yesterday about uh, Rabbi Eliezer who would prostrate himself on the ground until Rabbi Yochanan had departed. Okay. 
So that is walking backwards. Um, and again, an interesting intersection of Mikdash and Tefillah. And from that we transition to the next intersection of Mikdash and Tefillah. Um, the, when the Kohen Gadol would leave, um, and after he left the Kachek Kachim, he would make a small prayer in the Heichal, before exiting the Heichal. When we Tzalel Tefillah Ketar that's now going back to the Mishnah. So my Matzli, what would he pray? Rava Baravada, Ravim Baravada, Travayim Ishmei de Rav Amri. So both of these say in the name of Rav. Here's what he would say. May be thy will that this year shall be Gishuma Ushechuna, rainy and and hot. And so the Gemara says, Shechuna Malyusahi. What? It's like an overly hot year of good things. I mean, the emphasis of Shechuna means more hot than normal. Ella Ema. No. Here's what he would say. If it's going to be too hot, let it at least also be rainy to offset the heat. Um, and this was our primary concern, of course, about the crops, not about just their own comfort. Um, Rav Acha, if anybody remembers the, uh, you know, the, um, the uh, liturgy of Yom Kippur, after we do the whole Avoda, right, we have the, you know, that the Kohen Gadol would say, a, would say a prayer, and we have not a very short prayer, we have a quite long one, right, I think it's with the Alephase and the whole thing. Somewhere is, there is, you know, Geshuma im Shechuna, right, let it be rainy if it's going to be hot, but it's a quite, you know, a whole long paragraph prayer, not a, not a short one like this. Right, right, so anyway, but what's interesting is that of all the things to uh, single out, it was this issue, which just sort of shows the reality of being in an agricultural society, like, of the, let it, you know, the one thing you're going to say is this one thing, so it's about the concern that the weather would be, you know, appropriate, it would be as is needed. Um, so, Ella, um, so the Gemara says, "Rav Acha Brei the Rava Misayimba Mishmei the Rav Yehuda." So that felt that that wasn't enough just to pray for the weather. So he had the following conclusion. Now, it doesn't mean that this is what he he would have said if he were the Kohen Gadol. Is he reporting what he believed the Kohen Gadol actually did say? Anyway, but here's how he 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 ended it. Um, so Lo Yadi, and it's interesting also now the shift from Hebrew to Aramaic. Lo Yadi Avi Shulta Midbeis Yehuda shall not be removed. Those that uh, embody uh, uh, dominion from meaning from the house of Yehuda, meaning let us, you know, the idea that the kings come from Yehuda and the belief that uh, what's his name that uh, Reb Yehuda Hanasi was a direct descendant of David Hamelech, um, which is the sense that even in the Bayis Sheni, even though they were under foreign dominion, they still had a degree of their own. Political control and the fact that Rebbe was from 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 you know the house of Yehuda, the house of David, gave them that sense of that they still are you know some degree of autonomy um, and of self dominion. So uh, so here that would be one of the prayers that we should retain that as a nation. So it's actually quite powerful if you think about it because for us like okay the one thing you would want to say is I don't know let it be good in terms of health and parnasa you know but thinking here at a national level right because the Kohen Gadol is now representing the nation at a national level. Level. So, first of all, weather applies to everyone, and it's sort of the economic well-being of the people, but also the sense of a certain degree of autonomy and of still maintaining, you know, some sense of self-dominion. Not really, because you're under foreign rule, but nevertheless. So, let the rule, let, let dominion not be removed from the house of Yehuda. But do not let your people Israel need to support one another um, again this is again just m- making it broader than just the weather issue but about the issue about Parnassah so Lefarnes Demizeh 
means, you know, if everybody, you know, the Marsha sort of refers to um, a, Gemara, a famous Gemara in Brachos where uh, David's advisors come to him and say, you know, there's, uh, you know, everybody is poor. So he says, uh, well, just let them do business with one another. So, <laughs> like, you know, so it says, oh, that won't work. If everybody is poor, there's no money coming in. So what you want is you want a, uh, I'm sure there's an economic term for this, but what is it? A, uh, pot, the, uh, when more money is coming in from outside of the country than going out? Positive, positive balance of payment. Po- po- okay, there you go. Positive balance of payment. Anyway, so let, let, let us not all be just moving money from one pocket into the other. Let there be actually incoming, incoming money. Um, and let us, meaning let it be a good econ- a year economically for everyone. Um, and this is getting back to the weather-specific issue. Let not enter in your presence. Do not listen to um, the prayer of those that are going on the roads because those that are going on the roads don't want it to be rainy. So their own, you know, little self-interested personal concerns are certainly not more important than the national concerns about the proper weather, which often involves a good amount of rain. Okay, so um, where were we? Rabbi Hanina Mendoza have a Now we're going to talk about a prayer of Ovedrachim. Rabbi Hanina Mendoza was going on the way. Shadam Mitrale. So rain started pouring down on him. Amar, he said, Master of the world of the universe. Everybody has so wonderful. Everybody's home. I'm still here in the middle. You know, I have uh, 10 miles left to go. I'm in pain. Hosach Mitra. So the rain stopped. He also, then he got home. Amar, he said, Everybody now is in anguish because thanks to me you stopped the rain. I should have it easy. What about all the farmers? So, so then it started to rain. Okay, I'm not sure what we're supposed to learn from that other than it's like a type of a miracle. You know, we do have some of these miracle stories about certain Amorayim or certain Tanayim that they could all, God would automatically listen to everything they would say. So I suppose if God's going to equally listen to you to start it again when you get home, you, you can pray to him to stop it while you're still on the way. Okay. Um, I'm Rav Yosef. Rav Yosef said, "Maya honey late to lose the coin gold. The Gabi Rabbi Chanina Mendoza. What good would the prayer of the coin gold do with Rabbi Chanina Mendoza in the world? Rabbi Chanina Mendoza, God is always going to listen to him. <laughs> All right." He took a long time in his prayers. Um, and they took a vote, and they decided, even though it says that nobody can go in, you know, you know um, but nevertheless, he hasn't been coming out. Maybe he's dead. We've got to send somebody in. They were about to enter in. And he walked out just as they were about to enter in. Amrulo, they said to me, Why did you take so long to pray? Amrulo, and he said to them, What, you've got a complaint against me that I prayed for the well-being of you, of the people, and of the well-being, interesting, a theme we had not seen yet, about the well-being of the Mikdash, because it's always, it's interesting to think, like, at what stage of the Mikdash were they concerned, you know, in the Bayes Rishon, it's quite clear that like a hundred years leading up to the destruction or more, they knew that the, you know, that, that, that the end was in sight. But in the Bayes Shani, you know, at what stage did they start feeling like that they were under threat of it being destroyed? So one again wonders if it's not the rabbis projecting backwards and imagining that, you know, even at the time of the Bayes Shani, they were praying that it not be destroyed. Yeah, um, uh, yeah I don't have the exact date. Um, so, anyway, that's what, so is it, a pro, is, is it a problem for you that I prayed for you and I prayed for the base of Mikdash and it shouldn't be destroyed? Amrullah, they said to him, I'll be Rav Yilasso's king. You know what? Thanks a lot. But 
do not get into the practice of doing this. We have a Mishnah. Again, talking about a little anachronistic, right? So, the Mishnah says you're not supposed to die a long davening. You know, again, obviously there were rabbinic teachings still at the time of the base of Mishnah, you know, early Mishnayot, but Shaninu obviously seems to suggest already the literary corpus of the Mishnah, which they were quoting to him. So it's a little anachronistic, but you get the point. Don't be such a tzaddik, not even just for yourself, a tzaddik for other people, if that's not appropriate in this setting and you're going to get everybody worried. Yes. Have you ever heard this in Mimi, somewhere in the yeah, well, that's certainly not, that's certainly not in this story. I don't know where that's from, but it's not in this story. Have you heard that too? Yeah, I have heard that. It's in the Zohar, the rope idea? Okay. All right, next mission. Okay. The, no, the, the, the Gemara wasn't told about the Zohar. <laughs> if, they only, if the Gemara only had art scroll, would have been so much better. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. I will let, I will let the, the art school figure that out. Mishanito Aron. Now, that we, again, we told the story that putting the incense in front of the Aron, but the Gemara pointed out that that was also anachronistic because it conflated the reality of the two curtains with the Baitani to the reality of the Aron in the Bayes region. So this Mishnah addresses the, ba- the fact that they did not have it in the Bayes Mishanito Aron, from the time the Aron was removed, Evan Heiser Sham, there was a stone there. And that stone, it was already there even from the time of the Aron, from the time of the early prophets. You know, um, so, of course, if that's true, what, was the Aron sitting on top of the stone? Was it that the stone was uncovered, you know, after the Aron was removed? Was it like beneath the ground and they had uncovered it? When you say it was there from the time of the Nevi'im Rishonim, it doesn't mean that it was somewhere else. Okay, all the rocks were there in the world from the time of the Nevi'im Rishonim. It was there. It's not exactly... The pres- well, presumably. I mean, that's, you know, it's... Okay. I understand. It could have been underground, though. You know, and it was called the Shti'ah, the foundation stone. Three um, finger breaths above the ground. So that's not too much. That's like an inch. So that's not a very big stone. Now, I don't know. I heard, maybe your footnote would also say, where I don't know where this comes from, that what it actually means is not that the stone was only three finger breaths. It means that it actually hovered above the ground, miraculously. You can take a look if the footnote says that. That's not what the words no, say. Mean, now, the, the rock of the dome of the rock is pretty big, right? How big is it? It's huge. There's a picture over here. Yeah? Okay. It's not, it's not that it extends a while. I thought it extended a while. Not that it just goes high. It means it goes very far. It could. That's like an Igadola. Uh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not questioning the gedola. I'm just questioning the fact that the dome of the rock, if that's what it is, is much taller. Um, so that, I, so that I don't know. Anyway, okay. Yeah, that's true. Also, it could have been that it got uh, that it was below the a lot. Most of it was below the ground, and that got exposed. Or right. Anyway, and there's no. Well, first of all, you have to first assume we're identifying the Evan Steele with the Dome of the Rock. So I don't know. I mean, there's a logical reason to make that identification. They're both supposed to be in the same place. They're both talking about big rocks. But, you know, I'm not an archaeologist. I don't know what they said. But archaeologists have a pretty good sense of what the dimensions were and where it was, which is how you can have from tours up on Harbayas because they can be avoid going into the Azara because they do have a pretty good sense, you know, about where that was. Yes. 
on the beam of Shonen, that started long before the uh, yeah. powering was in uh, was in right uh, right. So, so that's my question. Well, no, 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 no. They didn't. It was there. It was on Harbayis. It wasn't there wherever the mikdash was. The rock was in on that place in Harbayis. You know. From but again, my question just is: is that was the Aron on the rock? Was the rock not yet uncovered at that time? Okay. Um, okay. Does uh, what's his name uh, shines out uh, say anything about the identifying of the rock with the dome with the rock? Uh, the meant the ark was placed on the rock. Okay, but no, but uh, on t- uh, so put the ark on the rock. But no, no, but in terms of identifying it with the do- with yes. the rock, no, according, to, according to many sources, many he doesn't say who the many yeah, are. Who are no. Okay, fine. All right. The Hebrew probably was. All right. Okay, moving on. Okay. The Aleha Hayanotain, and he would put the uh, incense on the rock itself. Not to look at Dominus So now we're done with the incense. Okay, so uh, he walked backwards. We already said that. Now we're just sort of footnoting what they would do in the Bayit Shani. But now he left the uh, Azara after doing the incense. So he gets the blood of the, of the ox from the one who was stirring it. Remember the guy who was stirring it by the uh, steps leading up to the uh, Ulam or the Azara. Um, he, he enters where he had entered. He goes back with the whole curtain thing to being now by the, in front of the Aron or in front of the rock. He stands where he stood. And he sprinkled one up and seven down. He wasn't trying to sprinkle on the Aron or on the rock itself not that one should be high one drop of blood should hit high and one should hit low that wasn't the point of high and low that he was trying to make the blood hit at a high point and at a low point like a like a like a you know uh, what like a flicking yeah that would be a good translation we'll worry about that tomorrow we're not going to we're going to focus tomorrow we're going to get to the act of the sprinkling here's how he would count Achas one, the one above. Achas v'achas, achas v'shayim, achas v'shayim, achas v'shayim, achas v'shayim, achas v'shayim, Okay. So the Yatsavim Yachal Khan Hazahad, he went down and he put the blood of the ox on a little gold pedestal that that was in the Heichal, presumably near the uh, near the uh, entrance to the Kodesh Kadashim. He violates the ear. Now he has not yet shechted the uh, goat, remember? Um, and, and I also want to remind you, he doesn't do a vidoy on the goat that's for Klai Yisrael. He only does a vidoy on the vote that gets sent Blazazel. But the one that has the parallel vote of the ox, Although he did two vidoys on the ox, he doesn't do a vidoy on the goat. All he had done with that goat until now is drawn the lots. Now you take this goat, shakto, he shakts it, the kibo means he also does the kabbalah sadam, he catches the blood in a, in a bowl. Nichnas tomakam chenichnas, he goes back to where he went. Vamad b'makam shamad, he stood where he stood. The Kodesh Kadashim, he's back in the Kodesh Kadashim. These are menu, achas amal v'shev alamata, v'kachayam moneh, achas 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 v'shayim v'chulay. Okay, the Mishnah probably had it all, but the uh, when they wrote it back, when they put it into the Bavli, they decided to, sh- to, to shorten it a bit. He leaves here too, right? He yeah, yeah, yeah. He does the exact same thing. He went out and now put it similarly on the gold pedestal. Hashani, excuse me, a second gold pedestal. There was only one pedestal. Now this is presumably part of Reb Yehuda's statement. Why you only need one pedestal? Because you, first of all, it could be a big pedestal that could have two bowls on it. But also, he says, you put one down and you take the other off. 
so you only need one pedestal. Okay, so he puts the, de, de, down the, the blood of the of the goat, and he takes off the blood of the of the ox, the the, the uh, vessel with the blood of the ox. Um, and now, yes. Is it here, uh Slaughtered in the Hegel? No, 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 no. He left, he left the Hegel. It doesn't say that he left. It yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. It doesn't say that he left, but he did leave. Okay, he did not. You're right. It doesn't say that he left. It's a good they point. Brought the they brought him. I know, but he didn't. Uh, he, I mean, we'll see it in the Gemara. You're right. It's missing. You're, that is bizarre. I had noticed that. Here? What does the note say? Go for it. Yeah. Oh, okay. It says that they don't bring him to go inside the hekel, rather he leaves the hekel to the courtyard and they bring it to him there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're right. It's not there, but that's clear that that's what happened. Okay. You don't do any shechita inside the hekel. Okay. Um, okay. So now we. Um, so now he took the. Uh, he put down the, the the blood of the of the goat. He took the blood of the par. The And now he does the sprinkling. He's outside the kodesh kedushim. He does the sprinkling on the on the curtain in the space of the curtain that is opposite the aron, the middle of the curtain. Mibachut out and standing outside the kodesh kedushim. One above and below, he would not try to hit have them hit above and below, but he would be afflicting. We'll see what that means. He would count the following and then he took the blood of the goat, put the blood of the cow back on the pedestal, either the same one or the other pedestal. And then he did the same with the blood of the of the goat on the curtain opposite the he now mixed the two bloods together. And now you sort of pour one, you're holding, you pour one into the other, and now you have one full vessel that has both, and then you pour from the full vessel that has both back into the empty vessel. You know, if you're trying to mix things well, you pour them from vessel to vessel. So that's what he did. Okay? Well, whatever. No. Exactly. I was thinking exactly about that. Talking about Sheva Brachos, we're going to have some very interesting, we're going to have some very interesting Agatha coming up. Let's take a look. Mishanignos Loktani, it did not say from the time the Aaron was hidden, which is what we've been assuming until now. El Mishanito, from the time the Aaron was taken, which might mean taken away. So this is not the idea that the Aaron was hidden, was uh, in the Mikdash, is that the Aaron actually was brought into exile into Babylonia. The time you saw the bright Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Aaron Golo Lebavel, the Aaron was exiled to Babel. At the end of the year, the return of the year, Nebuchadnezzar said, and he brought him, meaning Tzitkiyahu, um, I think is what he's talking about, no, Yehoyachin, excuse me, into Babel, in Quechem dat Beit Hashem with the desire with, with the vessels the desirous vessels of the house of God what's the most desirous vessel? it's the Aaron so the Aaron was taken into exile alright Rabbi Shimon and Yochai Omer Aaron Golal Babel the Aaron so another position a, a similar position the Aaron was exiled Shen Emar Lo Yoter Davar Lo Yoter Davar Amar Hashem nothing will be left after the exile so what's Davar Elo Aser Sadi broke the Ten Commandments um, Shabbat that are written in the in the Luchot that are in the Aron. Yehuda ben Lakish Shomer Aron ben Komoni does no. The Aron was buried and hidden in its place underneath the floor, presumably of the Kodesh Kodeshim. Shenemar vayiru Rashi Habadim in Kodesh Apnei Adavir. The tops of the poles 
were be able were seen in the uh, you know by um, in the holy space in the Heichal by the face of the Devir the Devir is the wall that separates the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kodashim so they would poke out through the curtain or they create protrusions bumps in the curtain so they would not actually be seen but they would be protruding and it would be and it was there they were there until this day so until this day means until any day you read the Pasuk they're still there till today okay no questions so again this was Reb Shimon ben Yuchai that said that it was buried there but now we have Ula that's going to tell that according to Reb Shimon ben Yuchai it was not buried there it was exiled that we have Reb Shimon ben Yuchai as Reb Shimon Yuchai Beromi when they were in Rome so that's interesting you know when you're in Rome you're wondering you're, you're thinking about all the stuff that was taken you know in, in, in the exile and then you're going to you know, you know sort of maybe taken over by Rome or what's being hidden in the uh, treasuries of the Vatican anyway the Kime Achak after Rabbi Eliezer teaches us that first and second base on Mikdash the Aaron was exiled into Bavel because one thing by the way that, right that was exiled into Bavel and the first one as we said what about the second one so, now I'm sorry, I, I completely said it wrong. Not first and second. One was exiled in the first base of Mikdash, obviously they didn't have it in the second. Meaning, we show in Vishniya, meaning that there are two psukim that teach us that by the end of the first base of Mikdash, it was taken into Bavel. One is the verse we already quoted, that all of the desirous vessels means the Aron. And the other, from, all, from the daughter of Zion was taken out all of her glory. So, and how does that mean? So again, for us, of course, that means, you know, the most important thing, the Aron. But now we're going to have another drusha that particularly underscores that. My Kohadara. What does it mean, Kohadara? Chadara. So, what's in the cheder, what's in the innermost chamber, right? Like, Haviani HaMelech Chadara. And actually, we're going to see some quotes from Shir Hashirim, right? Chadarav. So the idea of in the innermost chamber, um, so that's what was taken out. So we have two psukim that teach us that in the bias Rishon the arn was taken. You, what do you say? Meaning, what's your position? Do you agree that it was taken into Babel? said back to him, No, Shani Omer, I say, It wasn't taken into Babel, it was buried in its place. Like we said before, it was there until today. So anyway, so that's how it argues on Ula claims that according to Reb Shimba Yochai it was it was it's there, whereas the other break the breaker said that according to Reb Shimba Yochai it was exiled. So two two versions we're not going to answer it. Two versions of what Reb Shimba Yochai says. Now I'm away Rabba Ula. So Rabba says Ula, my mashma. Where do you get from this verse that it's still there? So now we're going to challenge that. Wherever it says until today, does that really mean? Till now, as opposed to till today when the verse was being written, does it really mean like forever? Vaxiv, they will give you other psukim to say Ariyomazeb. And the Jebusites that lived in Jerusalem, the, the, the children of Binyamin did not did not uh, exile, did not sort of uh, conquer. And the Jebusites sat with Bnei Binyamin until today. So now you think what they're going to challenge is that there are no Jebusites in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, but that we're not going to challenge. Who knows who who the non-Jews are in Jerusalem? But it also suggests. 
that Bnei Binyamin was in Jerusalem for, for you know, for, for forever. But that's not true. You mean to tell me that, the, that, that Bnei Binyamin were not exiled from Jerusalem? So, we heard it right. For the 52 years of exile, though we speak about 70 years of exile, actually, it's only 52 years after the Chorban of the Beis HaMikdash, according to Chazal. It was 70 years after, the 70 years is the 70 years from the time that Shitkiyahu was taken into exile, but 18, only 18 years after that was the Beis HaMikdash destroyed. So it was actually 15 years from the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. So for those 52 years, no man man passed through um, Yehuda presumably not Jew or non-Jew Shenembar certainly not Jew on the mountains I will lift up cry and wailing and a you know a, a eulogy um, in, the, in the wilderness what? I'm not sure the gore uh, the, the, the dwelling places or the uh, I don't know because they have been de- desolated from any man passing through and that you have not heard the sound of the flock from the sky of the heaven until animals they have been they have wandered and, and left so there has been nobody there and how do you know for 52 years so because Behemah and Gematia is 52 now obviously they already knew 52 but they tied it to this verse and therefore they said that you know this verse is that it's completely desolate there's absolutely nobody there one minute Betania Reb Yosi Reb Yosi Reb Yosi says the Pesach says right about the exile right sulfur and salt so he says for seven years that was true in Eretz Yisrael that the land was not only was there no people living there but the land was completely you know uh, untillable just destroyed Rabbi Yochanan my time at Rabbi Yossi where does he get this idea that the seven years that he makes it there and so the way Rashi says it was being read is that Nebuchadnezzar sort of like imposed the Brit on the masses or on the great ones for one week for seven year period and what Brit is that the Brit where it says why is this happening why is the land destroyed because they abandoned the Brit so that was for connecting to this verse of seven years that punishment of Gafrit was for seven years Okay, so anyway, so that's the question. So you see, even though it says they were there until today, for the Jebusites and for Bnei Binyamin, they were not there for a period of time. So Adi Yomazet does not mean uh, without cease. So uh, so Gemara says he has an answer. Amalei hachaksiv sham. It says, Vayu sham Adi Yomazet. There. There somehow means continuously. Hasam loksiv sham. It didn't say there. They were until today. So somehow that does, somehow that doesn't have to mean continuously. What by by uh, by the Aaron it says by you sham and by Bnei Binyamin it says by without sham. So somehow sham means that it was permanent and continuous. I don't exactly get why sham has to do with continuity of time as opposed to continuity of place. But that's what he says. The difference is yes, Charlie. Um, Obvious meaning of Ad Hayom Hosea was being meaning until the time that Yahweh rose. That's what I said. Okay. Right. But, but, so how this would not make sense to have that discussion if that's... I understand, but they assume that once it's canonized and in the and in the Tanakh, then it will always be true and it will always be Ad Hayom Hosea. Now it was a sad argument as long as it says somehow the word Sham that makes the difference. Okay. So <laughs> something Ad Hayom Hosea can mean until the day of the. Uh, 
Yeah, well, that's why the according to the position that the Aaron is still there. So we're not done. So the Gemara says, You really mean every time it says Sham until today that it means forever? And from the people of Binyamin, they went to the Mount Seir, five hundred people, and these four people were heading them. They wiped out the remnant that was for Amalek. They remained there until today. So how could it be that they are still there in Har Seir until today? When Samcherev came, he re, you know he put, he put everybody in a different place from where they were. So nobody is where they were where they were originally. I will remove the boundaries of nations. And they're I don't know how to translate that. I forgot. I looked it up beforehand. They're what? And I plunder their treasures. Okay. Anyway, so you see that 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 it does not mean Sham does not mean that they continue to be there until today. So it says, where are we? Um, All right, the problem. So it does not mean it's literally until today, and you do not have a support from that verse. He still might believe the Aaron is buried there, but he doesn't have a support from that verse. Amar of Nachman. Rav Nachman says, Tana, we turn to Brisa, the Chachamimo, I mean, the sages say, Aaron Belishka Stir Ha'etzim Ha'ichaya. This is what we learned before when we learned Shkalim and elsewhere, that the Aaron was not taken into exile, was not buried under the Kachay Kachim. It was actually buried in the chamber where they had the wood that they used for the Mizbeach under the floor. Ha'yaganus. That's what was buried. Amar of Nachman by Yitzchak. Avananamitanina. We taught here to Mishnah Shkalim, which is why we learned Shkalim before Yoma. A Kohen was just, uh, you know, busying himself with something or playing with fooling around and he saw that the floor was different in one place from the other places. I assumed it meant like the color, the tile was different. It looked dug up. Rashi says it means that the tile was a little bit higher so it could tell that it had been dug up because it was a little uneven tile. He went and he told his friend, and he did not, was not able to finish getting the words out, whether that the Aaron was buried or where it was buried, until his soul was, was you know, left him. He dropped dead. So they knew, maybe they didn't know where in the Deir Ha'etzim, or maybe actually did get the words out of his mouth, but they knew that the Aaron was buried in the Deir Ha'etzim, in the, in, in the, um, the Lishkar Ha'etzim. Okay, my my of it. It says he was fooling around. What was he doing? All right, I don't know how he knows. He was playing with his axe. Okay. Tana debate Rabbi Shmuel. We talked about Rabbi Shmuel. What? Yeah, he was chopping woods. Right. Tanya, um, but I don't know, somehow where playing with the axe made him, uh, I don't know, how that led him finding it. I don't know why of all things he decided to, uh, to say that, you know, try to, to, uh, to identify that as what he was doing. Tana Debe Rebbe Ishmael. Now we have a bright, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, skip the line. Tana Debe Rebbe Ishmael. Shnei Kohanim Bali Mumim Hayim Here's a different version or an elaborated version of the story. There are two Kohanim that had blemishes so they could not be working in the Mikdash. So you know what they did? They, it's like, they, you know, they sent them to peel potatoes. You know, so, not, so they sent them them to to go to the uh, chamber of the wood and to get rid of all of the wood that had uh, that had worms in it to dispose of the wormy wood to go through stick by stick and dispose of the wormy woods. So how <laughs> They were removing the worms or the wormy wood from the wood. And this is where we have the story about the about the about the axe. The axe of one of them slipped mehem and it fell there. 
meaning basically it hit the floor, presumably underneath where the Aaron was. So Vyasta Eshvachalaso, and fire came out of the floor and consumed him. It's like straight from, uh, I could be him. I assume, I could, it could be the axe, but I assume to make it consistent with the previous story. It's him. Maybe that he noticed and said something. Oh, what's that? Um, as opposed to the other guy noticing. I don't know. Maybe. Um, all right. I assumed it meant him. Anyway, straight out of Indiana Jones. They say the axe. Okay. They say the axe, but then they say, see, however, you say a nine setting your shalami, which probably says. All right, whatever. Fine. Moving on. All right. Rav Yehuda Rami. Rav Yehuda showed a contradiction. See, one verse says, Vayiru Abadim, that the heads of the poles will be seen, were seen. See, the other verse says, they were not seen. Haketzad. So what does it mean? Were they seen or not seen? So near in the they were seen, but they are not fully seen. What does that mean? Tanya not we thought similar. They were, if they were seen, maybe it means that they were not, they were not moved from their place because the Aron, right, the Aron was, this is the Kodesh Kedashim, right, and this is the Aron, well, it's not exactly square, but you get the idea. The Aron only took up a small part of the Kodesh Kedashim, and even with the staves, it would not have, the Kodesh Kedashim was 20 amot. Right? 20 amot by 20 amot, we said. The Aaron was like, what? Like, you know, so even however long the staffs were, they weren't like 10 amot long on each side. So if the staffs stayed in their places, they would not have gotten up to the front, uh, and this was dead center, it would not have gotten up to the curtain, it would not have gotten up to the front of the Kodesh Kedashim. So, perhaps they would not be moved from there, they would be like, you know, exactly where they should be alongside the Aron. Tamud Lamar, where am I? Tamud Lamar, they were lengthened, which, um, now, you could say that means somehow miraculously they were lengthened. The Mosheh makes it sound, no, all it means would be would that they actually would move the staffs so they would not be centered, they would be still in the, you know, in the, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, the sockets or the loops or whatever the rings that were alongside but they would not be evenly centered they would basically be pushed forward well we're going to see but they would be pushed forward so that the tops of the staves while it's still alongside the other one the tops of the staves could reach the wall the wall the curtain of the Kachay Kachay okay so he says so they were lengthened they were made for they were long but they weren't 20 amos long maybe they were 10 amos long or 12 amos long okay Maybe this, now that they were going up to the front of the curtain, maybe they would tear through the curtain and come out. They would not be seen. So they were pushing against the curtain, but they were not visible. So what was happening? Uh, so they would push and protrude and like um, and they would be not coming out but they would like be making a you know a bump in the parochas and it would look like a woman's breast so you would sort of see the uh, the outline of it without actually seeing them. Shenemar Sror Hamor Dodili Bein Shadai quoting a verse from Shir Shirim, a uh, bundle of myrrh, my beloved is to me, he will rest between my breasts. So seeing now that becomes, and this is going to be the next piece of what we're going to learn, a very erotic uh, imagery of the Aaron and the relationship of Ne Israel to God, you know, which is what Shir Shirim is. It's in not rom- just romantic, but even erotic. And you know, in a way that's extremely powerful it, it calls on like some of our most powerful like urges which is also like this desire uh, to unify and to con- you know with somebody else in a very powerful way and translates that into the context of 
you know, of God and B'nai Yisrael. Um, look, we know that, uh, you know, in other traditions, like um, in, uh, in uh, Eastern traditions and in Islam, you know, there was a lot of sort of erotic, uh, in Indian, right, a lot of erotic poetry in the sense of, you know, within, you know, intersecting with religious and sort of bringing those two together. I mean, we, the only thing we sort of have clearly of that is the whole, is Shirashirim, you know, but, but what it gets, gets played out in some of the descriptions that we're about to deal with in terms of the Aron and the Kodesh Kodashim and God and the Yisrael. And I want to say something about that, which is um, the power of, remember we said before that it said Hadara Hadara by the, uh, by the, um, by the Aron. And, you know, I quoted before you, Haviyani HaMelech Hadarav. So who is going in to the innermost chamber? It's the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. So thinking about the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur going in as right to the innermost chamber of the you know of the beloved you know the bedroom where God here as the woman which by the way is also worth pointing out that most of the imagery God is the man and the Israel is the woman here God becomes the woman like the object if you would the, you know of desire right and the and the one that the Kohen Gadol is now entering into her chambers where you know she sort of you see the feminine form like protruding out with the arm and entering in and it's actually this verse right Sror Hamor Dodi Li Ben Shadayalim Myrrh is a incense it's a Ketoret so and you put the Ketoret between the Badim Ben Shadayalim so that's exactly what you're doing. You're going in to be one, sleep with, as it were, you know, the beloved and placing the myrrh right there, Bein Habadim. So it's really very powerful in translating this imagery of Shir Hashirim to this meaning of the Kohen Gadol entering into the Kodesh Kadashim. And again, I don't know if this is intended or not, but you might, it, you might have, I didn't note it at the time, but you might have noted that when we talked about entering in the Kodesh Kadashim without a purpose, the phrase used was Bia Reik. Kanit, yeah. Bia, right, entering in, right, which is the same, right, which is the same, which is the same word for intercourse, right. So there's very powerful erotic imagery here, particularly around this entering into the holy of holies, the innermost chambers. And I really think the placing—I don't know—somebody else must have said this before me, but the idea of placing the incense between the badim and Srohamor dodi li bein shaday alin is like seems to be very much being you know in, indicated here. Amar Rav Ketina, so said Rav Ketina. When Israel would go up for the regel, they would they would pull aside, roll up the uh, curtain in the Kaddish Kaddashim. Now, how they would see that, because they weren't allowed in the Heichel either, but if you remember, all the doors of the Heichel and the Azara were all in a line. So presumably they would like pull aside the curtains of all of the doors, and they could see straight into the Kaddish Kaddashim, even if they were in the Azara. Okay? And they would do this. And now we're trans- this, now this is going to play out in terms of the Kruvim, which were two angels, or two human forms, and they saw them that they weren't just standing opposite. Somehow, miraculously, they were intertwined one in another. Um, um, the Omi I mean, you see that in like right Greek and Roman art, right? You know, don't you know how they draw these like figures, like intertwined love, lovers intertwined? And they said to them, the Omi Mohem, see your how beloved you are before God. We needed it spelled out anymore. Like the love between male and female. All that is very no, not ish the isha. Right, is very much you know physical and sexual, right? Much more than even Ishri Isha. Now, what of course is a little bit challenging here, beyond you know beyond the erotic imagery, is that the exposing of it, 
right? That, that, isn't that sort of like ruining the whole thing? Isn't the whole point that it takes place in the private and in the Holy of Holies? It's the most intimate of acts, but they're obviously dealing with the problem of how do you let yeah, other people that the Kodesh, that the coin Gadol on Yom Kippur, you know, sort of be, you know, you know, you know be uh, impacted by this whole, by, by this reality. So you have this idea of almost like peeking into the bedroom. Um, the blood on the parochet plays into the way. Oh, that's interesting. What, you mean like, like uh, hymenal bleeding? Like, like, the, like, oh, that's a, a very interesting thought. That's very interesting. Wow. I haven't gone that far. <laughs> that's very interesting. Okay. Mati Rav Chizda. So Rav Chizda asked, now, how can you say that they exposed it like this? I mean, we have in the in the Mishkan in, in the Mishkan it says that before the Levim would come to carry the uh, to carry the vessels, they could not see as the vessels were being put away into the uh, into the you know into the bags. When the vessels were being put into their various baths, uh, 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 they could not. That's what the verse means. They could not go and see it. And here you're talking about this type of exposure. So Amrav Nachman, Mashalakala, it's like a bride. While she's in her father's house, meaning even after Kiddushin, but they would, hadn't started living together. It's not yet ensuing. So she's still living in her father's house. So Tznuami Bala, she's very, she's very modest. She's very, you know, even though the man is her husband, they haven't started living together yet. So she doesn't expose herself. Even Shabazal of Eitzchamil, once she comes to her father-in-law's house, which is quite funny, it really means her husband's house, but, you know, but it meant, but the husband was living with his father. So once it's Nisuin, and it's Nuami Bala, then she's not so, you know, uh, um, modest with her husband, and, and therefore she, she's willing to allow herself to be seen more. Um, now, of course, what's amazing about, so the answer is, in the time of the Mishkan, they were just married. B'nai Israel and God were just married, so God had to adopt more privacy. And by the way, if it was unclear before, God is here the woman, right? The same way was the, you know, the Aaron was like the woman and the breast, God is the woman. So when they were just married, God was still very private, you know? While, while God is dressing and undressing, he doesn't want, you know, he to be seen. So, you know, go out. I gotta, you know, guys, I don't want you, you know, chinky seeing the vessels naked, right? Then, they've been all living now together for a lot of years, and uh, it's a few hundred years later, they have a base of mikdash. Now it's okay. Every now and then, you know, you remove the curtains and you're able to see. By, by, by the way, what else is sort of um, uh, powerful about this is, you know, again, the use of the phrase base avi and base chamia might just have been a way to say nisu, kiddushin and nisuin, but also if it's base chamia, so God moving sort of to you know, harabayis is moving to the father-in-law's house. It's almost like, again, by casting God as the woman, you know, especially in this patriarchal society, and the man is therefore the one that sort of is the one, you know, it's his house, his control, his, and she's entering into that. So it's like, the base of Mikdash, I think there's something how, it's like, you know, with so much that's focused at the Mikdash is like Makom Hashchina, not our place, right? But here it's actually, you know, the Mikdash moving in is like, it's moving into our land moving into our house, you know, and therefore it's like, you know, we have actually a little bit more sense of freedom in this relationship because God is now in our land as opposed to when we were out in the wilderness, you know, then we were less balabias. Um, so I think that's also interesting and part of the whole, this whole imagery that it's setting up. It's okay. human beings. Right. Logically. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Right, and the irony is that by projecting God as the woman, yes, sociologically 
Right, it reinforces it, right, it reinforces the patriarchal right type of uh, reality. But working within working within that reality, it's making it's very powerful to be casting B'nai Israel as the man. And now God is entering into base Hamia, yeah. Yes. <laughs> right, yes. That's the problem when you know, the challenge for feminists who try to take parts of the tradition and sort of make them work at a feminist level, but they're still deeply embedded in the, you know, in the, in the patriarchy. So, like, the Shina, right, which is the feminine dimension of God, is still, you know, not, you know, more, not as positive as the male dimensions of God within the Kabbalistic sort of mindset. So, it, it's not so easy to, to recast those things. Okay. Right. Okay. Anyway, let's, let's read a little bit more. Um, okay. What do you mean that, you know, now things are different? Then how come, like, this guy died when, uh, the fire went out with the our owner? He tried to, you know, tell somebody it seems like, it seems like it's still that privacy thing. Now, of course, I thought that the whole story was because, you know, you didn't want it to be known where it was. It wasn't like an ongoing issue of privacy. But the Gemara reads it that the reason the fire went out or whatever happened was because he exposed the Aron. Um, and so you see that that idea of privacy is still there. On the leg, he said back to him, What? After they've been divorced? They were divorced and then remarried. Then it gets back to the way things used to be. So, <laughs> so they were divorced after Chorban Bayis Arishon. Then comes Bayis Shani. Now they're remarried. So now God wants some privacy again. It's not like they've been together for so long that they can be so comfortable with one another. It gets back to the to the original way it was. Um, so okay. So now let's a little. Let's finish it up. Okay. So now what are we talking about? So this idea that the staves would be pushing out of the curtain. If it's in the first space of Mikdash, Miyave Parochas. There wasn't a parochas, it was a wall. Of course what we're going to say is that yes, but the doorway of the wall was a hanging curtain. Shani was the second base of Mikdash. Miyave Kruvim, there weren't a Kruvim. So Ola oh it's not even the staff protruding, it was also just pulling back the parochas so people could see. Wait, so yeah, because the Kruvim were on top of the arrows. It was the first place of Mikdash. My parochet. Parochet to Bali. And the curtain was the curtain hanging in the doorways. The Amarab Zera Amarab. There were 13 curtains. Shiva Kenegat Shiva Shaurim. Seven opposite the seven in the doorways of the seven gates that entered into the Azara. Shtayim and two more. Curtain. Yeah, the gate didn't have maybe an addition to a, a doorway, presumably. Right. Two. Uh, and there were two more one in the doorway of entering into the Heichal and one in the doorway of the Ulam so now we're up to nine Stein Bidvir, two by the Kaddish Kadashim, as we said, the two, you know, that were going in different directions, right? With openings at one end and then openings at the other end. This is Bayashani, but the same way, by Bayashani, you had curtains in the doorways, you had curtains in the doorways in Bayash Rishon. That's the argument. But Shaim Kenegdim Ba'ali had two more on the second story of the, of, of the Kaddish Kadashim. You also had two curtains in the story above the Kaddish Kadashim that you would go in to go down when you had to do work. Okay, anyway, we see there were curtains in the doorways. So yes, this idea of the, po- of the poles protruding and removing the curtain is Mikdash Rishon with the poles in the doorways. Okay, so Rav Achabar Yaakov Amar Le'olam 
B'mikdash Sheni. Really, we're talking about the second base on Mikdash. Ukruvim um, detsurasa havakaimi. Actually, yes, there were not actual kruvim, meaning the poles of the Aron, that was Mikdash Risha. But the story about removing the curtain and seeing the kruvim, we're not talking about the, like, statue kruvim. We're talking about some type of a image of kruvim. And this image was painted on the walls, or maybe even carved into the walls. Apparently, there were wood walls that lined the stone. So it was, you know, it was wood paneling lining the stone, and carved into the wood was images of Kruvim, even though there was no Aron, which is quite interesting. As opposed to now we have been thinking just of a rock, you have some type of a memory of the Kruvim now being carved into the wall in the back of the Kodesh Kadash. And all the walls of the house were some type of an engraving, uh, um, you know, braided engraving. Now, this is Mikdash Rishon, so would, that at least was there also in Mikdash Sheni. Kruvim the Tamot, cherubs and uh, palm trees, open flowers, and a gold uh, fill, or, you know, was uh, filled into the, uh, car- into, into, the, into the carvings. So you had carvings in the walls filled with gold. Succeed, and it says to Meir Ish Vilivyat, like the in that which is being read as like the intertwining of a man and Livyat. Mike Meir Ish Vilivyat, Vilivyot, Amarabba Barashila, Keish Han Urab Vilivyashala, like a man intertwined with his with his accompaniment, meaning with his, with his consort. So again, again, the Kruvim, and not just the Kruvim, but the Kruvim intertwined, and that you still have even in the Mishpah Shemi. When the, when the non-Jews entered in, the foreigners entered into the Heichal, in the Bayes Sheni, presumably, they saw the Kruvim intertwined. Presumably now we mean the image on the walls. Unless it's referring to Bayes Rishon, but presumably it's the image on the walls. Um, they took him out, out into the marketplace. They completely now, you know, they entered into the most private, and they now brought it out into the most public space. Again, the idea, the idea of they saw the Kruvim and they took them out suggests we're talking more about the actual statues of the Kruvim and the Bayit Mishon. But, you know, but most Mephorshim understand that this is talking about the Bayit Shani. So they ripped out, if you would, the, the, the carvings, you know, the wall paneling, which has this imagery, and they took it out into the marketplace. The Amru, and they said, Yisrael, this Jewish people, Shabir Chosan Bracha, Vikilazan Kwa, they're supposed to be so holy. Anybody they bless is blessed, like by Avram, anybody they curse is cursed. They're so holy. Yasku Bidvarim Halalu, they should do this type of thing. You have like sexuality in the Kaddish Kaddashim. So Miyag, Yizilum, then they denigrated them. Shanemar, Kolechabdeh, Yizilua. Every, all of those that would uh, honored it, here they honored it, they said, Brachasam, Bracha, Vikilasam, they understood the importance of Israel, but now they denigrated them, Kiva they saw its nakedness, its most intimate, its most intimate moment. And this is very, by the way, quoting the Pasuk here from Eicha also could suggest the idea of the first phase of Mikdash, which again, is much more also disturbing and powerful, the actual, you know, statues of the Kruvim intertwined on top of the Aron. But by the way, what's I think powerful about the end of this is, you know, that sex between husband and wife can be the most powerful and intimate and holy of experiences. But then if it's taken out and into the marketplace, right, right, then it completely denigrates the experience. So in that place, in that context of the relationship of B'nai Israel and God, in that context, that actually was the place where that was holy and that was powerful. But, you know, if somebody looks at it from the outside and they don't have the context, 
you know, they see sex maybe always as something pornographic. pornographic, and then, you know, and then they just went out and they made it such by bringing it outside. But again, it's interesting the contrast between bringing it out to the shuk as opposed to the way the whole thing started, which is all the ways you have to do and all the procedures you have to do in order to go into the innermost chambers. Right, and that's sort of being held as the concept about the power of that innermost, you know, that coming into the innermost chamber, and if you would, the bringing together of humans and God, and now the, the end about what happened to the Korban Abayis and the complete, you know, devaluing of it and denigrating of it. Okay, so we'll pick up tomorrow.